Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Thank you, Matt, and worship team for leading us so well. I, Matt uh, plans a set, you know, worship set songs we're going to sing. They practice those, and sometimes they don't even know. Like, I'll make a, a change on a Saturday or so. And what a good set that was in light of changes that I was about to make, that the Lord led me to make uh, today. And we're going to declare our need for God, and we're going to end up there today. But uh, these songs just helped us get ready to do that and to be in a position and place to be able to declare a need for God and surrender and be in a place of, of uh, open hands to Him. So thank you guys for leading. Thank you, Spirit, right, for guiding that process. It's so cool to see so many times how He does that. Well, we're going to uh, dive in this morning to a new series. We'll get into that in just a minute. But are you enjoying the spring weather? I think the, yeah, I think the difference between first and second service size-wise is telling me you guys are liking getting outside. So you guys, I know you'll get out later on, but man, first service was like you couldn't even find a seat in here, and then second, a little more space in here. But uh, I hope you get, are able to get outside, and this is, I'm hoping, not fool's spring that this is the real deal, right? And we just go up from here. So let's pray then. Should we? No, I won't pray for that right now, but why don't we pray? Father, as we now open up your word that promises to uh, speak to us, that it's living and active, there's, there's a life to it, that you have your will that gets carried out through your word, God. We want to now be ready to receive that. And so, God, our simple prayer and request would, that, would be that you right now um, do what you need to do to get us ready to receive. God, I pray for children in this room, that they would listen and hear. For teenagers in this room, Lord, that th- they would be able to engage and, and hear and receive from your spirit today. Lord, for adults in this room, God, would you, would you help us? God, there is a lot of lack that I have but your spirit is the one that really explodes the word in our life. And so, Lord, would you, by your spirit, speak to us in each of our individual places, regardless of my ability to try to bring it into our small lives in our individual places. So, Lord, do that in us, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are big readers. To kill a mockingbird... The Lord of the Rings is on your list. The Great Gatsby, Pride and Prejudice, Catcher in the Rye. We could go on with a list of the classics, right? Books that you've read that have a great plot. And part of what makes a great plot is a climax in the story. But you could have a great plot. But if you have poor character development, you would say that that story falls flat. We've watched some movies and read some books that we would say, yeah, that fell flat because the characters... We're, we're just not well developed. I didn't understand the character. I didn't connect to the character. Good stories have great character development. We want to read about people, not just plots. Plots in and of themselves don't do it. We want life because when that happens well, 
we connect to that. It even provides sometimes guidance for it and understanding of life. And so we'll go, oh, I understand that character. I understand how he responded. When we're oftentimes asking the question or hoping that the book answers, who is this person? What drives them? What's their purpose? What are they doing? The Word of God has many characters in it, and one of the most well-developed characters in Scripture beyond Jesus is Peter. The Apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, this man who's represented so well throughout Scripture, presented in all of his glory and his misery. We see the highs and the lows of Peter. Peter is referred to almost 200 times in the New Testament. John, who's one of Jesus' closest disciples beyond Peter, is named only 31 times in the New Testament. We get a good development of Peter. He's one of the central characters beyond Jesus. He's one of the central characters to the New Testament Gospels. And his interactions with Jesus help us see Jesus and understand Jesus by watching his life. Many of the stories around the Gospels, the transfiguration, the question of the temple task, the foot attacks, the foot washing, and many, many more stories surround Peter. Peter is a complex character. He's, he's one of these guys, as we continue to read throughout the New Testament, the, the complexity of who he is gets unfolded. He's not just simple. He's, he's very uh, multifaceted. We watch a progression of Peter through the New Testament. When we start at the Gospels, the beginning of the Gospels, where we're going to be through where he ends up into the book of Acts, it's amazing what God does in him. Imagine the relationship, in other words, the friendship that Peter had with Jesus. We're going to unpack that. But you watch Peter. Peter became one of Jesus' closest earthly friends, probably his closest earthly friend. Peter seldom left Jesus' side. Peter was passionate, and we like that about Peter. He was a little bit of a wild man. He, would, he was spontaneous, but yet in the midst of that, he was wise. He had this deep wisdom that drove him, and he was zealous for the Lord in a good way, but it also had to be tempered over time. So here we are, starting off in a series that we're calling Ordinary Made Extraordinary. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the life of Peter as it puts Jesus on display Uh, What made Peter go from ordinary to extraordinary? It's not that Peter was able to look inside of himself, discover his full potential, and suddenly be able to express that. That's not a biblical thought. What made Peter move were some different things. In fact, I want to highlight two specific words that are in the title to this series as he went from common to extraordinary is first that Christ made the man we know as Peter. He didn't start off with the name Peter. We'll get into that today. Christ made him like the author. He formed him like an artist shaping and molding him. Peter had to be formed not by looking inside of himself, but by outside, by Christ in him. And I want to also point out this too, that it was Christ who made Peter. Not Peter making Peter, not somebody else making Peter. It was Christ working in Peter through the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. So when we talk about what happened, what occurred in Peter's life, it's really something we can connect to. In our church this year, we're talking about 2020 being the year of of working and honing on discipleship in our church. And Acts over time 
if you, it may start sharp, and as you use it, an axe can grow dull. It has to be sharpened. It has to be maintained. In the same way, at River of Life, we've done a great job of discipleship over the years, but we want to keep sharpening our axe to make sure our, our attempts at discipleship and what God's doing in discipleship are as effective as possible. And that's what we're after. And Peter serves as such a great example for us of the discipleship process, the movement in his life. Now, with that, uh, understanding that the grace of God was working in him, that the Spirit is the one who did this massive overhaul in Peter. I want to tell you a story that helps illustrate (coughs) how Peter was made new when we talk about this. Several years ago, we crashed our Suburban. Um, so we had a Suburban that we drove as our family vehicle in a snowy winter day. Uh, it was going down the road, and it spun out, went sideways into the ditch, and rolled. Now, one of the good things is, well, first of all, we were all okay. Second of all, one of the good things in Minnesota when the snow is deep is that there's a cushioning with it. So somehow, no windows broke, not one piece of glass was shattered. In fact, all that happened was one of the running boards was pulled just like completely pulled down. There was a dent in the driver's side door, a significant dent. And then what you couldn't see until it was all out and starting to melt was that the top of the Suburban, it looked like somebody had just kind of pushed it down, just made a little bit of a bird bath in there. In fact, it didn't even damage the frame of the vehicle. So we took it into a body shop and had them look at it. And we said, well, what can you do? So they started looking at it. They did the numbers. And I know they really wanted to get the work and not just have it totaled out. So that's part of what happened here. But they were looking at it. And I said, if we're going to do this, if we're going to fix it, I would like it to be new parts. I want it to be done right. Not just pop the door out, put some Bondo over it, and, and repaint it. What they ended up doing was replacing the parts It was not salvaged, it was remade, it was rebuilt. And we were able to do that with the insurance money. It was right on the edge of of what it would be to total it out versus fixing it. So they went in, they put all these new parts on it. Our Suburban had new, in fact, in some ways, probably better stuff than it had before. So what God does in us and what he did in Peter is God doesn't just go, oh, that's really, I, I can just pop that dent out of you and I'm just going to resurface it. God makes us new. God puts all new into us. He doesn't just rebuild us. And we're going to see that that happens in Peter's life. He's made new. He's transformed as God works in him. Not an overhaul, but all new. When we look at the finished product of Peter, we go, man, look at an ax. The guy's mature. He's, he's solid. Look how God's using him. But it was quite a journey to get there. God worked on this guy for a long time like a piece of clay that he was molding and shaping into the image that he wanted, his own image in him. And so the life of self was strong in Peter. What we see in Peter is he went from this, I I don't really want to use the term because it's a little more than what's true about him. He was kind of wildly independent, He went from a wild independence, this, I got it, I'll be fine. I mean, he was a fisherman after all. He had been fine taking care of himself to a place of dependence on God. That's really the maturation of the disciple, moving from independence to dependence. It's what we see in children. We move from independence, I've got it, I think I've got it at least, to dependence on God. And that's what happens, what we want to do with children, help put their dependence on God. So we see this occur in Peter. 
Andrew Murray talked about Peter. He wrote several times about Peter, and he said this, Peter, and see if this, this reflects your own life, he left his boats and his nets, but not his old self. It took a long time for God to work out the old self. He might have left some behind. He might have left parts of his life behind, but God had an inner man that he was going to work on. Peter's story is the story of every believer walking with Jesus. Peter's a man who, who experienced the power of God. I mean, I haven't seen this part, but Peter had at least seven miracles that were directly for him or right in front of him. Uh, likely two miraculous catches of fish, healing of his mother-in-law, walking on water. Goodness, that's awesome. Healing of the soldier's ear. Remember when he cut the soldier's ear off when Jesus was being arrested and Jesus healed that ear? Two miraculous deliverances from prison, the coin in the fish's mouth. Peter moves in his life. He moves from this place where of self, self-exaltation, and he becomes a man who's meek and humble and able to be used by God. He's utterly changed. He goes from self-pleasing and self-trusting and self-seeking uh, to being a man, who's full, and, and a man who's full of sin, to becoming a man who no longer is those things. He's no longer troubled and foolish and spontaneous and prideful. Instead, we watch him become full of the Spirit and the life of God emerge in him. I want to be like that. I want to see that in my life. That's discipleship. He models that so well for us. Peter becomes the man of Pentecost, the man who takes part in healings, who casts out demons, who professes Christ in difficult situations. He writes epistles. Peter uh, sees uh, how Christ has done this in him. And at least in the first 12 chapters of Acts, we see how Peter, who's often, uh, we, we notice him as this lovable man, but he becomes the leading man of following Christ, of, of the apostles. We see him really uh, take a leadership position. He's often uh, misunderstanding of situations and often misunderstood by other people, but he's transformed by the Spirit into one of the most foundational leaders of the church. Peter is a man of change. In fact, Peter even leads the charge into reaching the Gentiles, which most of us in this room, the majority of us, would be Gentiles. He calls what was unclean now clean, as Jesus gave him that vision. He's called before councils. He's arrested several times. He's hunted like a criminal, but yet he becomes a strong leader. It's because of those things the Catholics said, oh, he's the first pope evangelicals, Protestants, sometimes have looked at him and we've kind of uh, relegated him to just, oh, he's one of the 12 disciples. He's a good man. And we don't necessarily highlight his leadership, maybe out of fear of, uh oh, what if we make him like a pope? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. He was a strong leader. We watch him move in his life as his calling emerged from self to Christ. See, the root of Peter's sin, his independence, is self. And we're going to dive deep into that. Christ works that out of him. Christ does it in Peter. And he's waiting to do it in you too. And I think God's going to do some of that in us over these next weeks as we look at this. We love Peter because he's probably the most human of all the disciples. As his character is unfolded, we're attracted to him because we can relate to his highs and his lows. But here's a word of caution. We are not Peter. 
And some of the direct things that Peter uh, deals with, like when God calls him to step out of the boat, God is not calling you to Highline Lake and trying to walk out onto the water. But he is calling you to take steps of faith forward. And in those things, as we look for those practical applications, Christ is magnified. And he's seen and he's shown. And he'll do that in you as we allow these things to become very practical in our life. So in your Bibles, if you would, open up to John chapter 1. And we're going to get into Peter today. And we're going to start looking at this first call in his life. Peter's introduced to us near the beginning of all of the Gospels. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the middle of your Bible, start the New Testament. And at this point, it tells the story in each of those four Gospels of Jesus' life. And in Jesus' life, in these Gospels, we we see the day-to-day interactions and things that happen. And we see two different stories of Peter. They're very different stories. And as, as uh, Charles Spurgeon wisely pointed out, because the details are so different, there's likely two different initial, what you could call, callings in Peter's life. And we're going to take those in two separate chunks. One today, and then another out of the book of Mark uh, in two weeks. Next week, um, Pastor Taylor is going to preach. And in two weeks, we'll come back to Peter, and we're going to look at one of those callings, the second one. This first one, though, is a primary one where Peter's eyes get open, and God radically redefines Peter. That's part of a disciple's journey. It's likely part of your journey if you follow Christ, that there was a radical moment of change and transformation when your eyes are opened and a new identity is put upon you. So you have your Bibles open to John chapter 1. I'm going to start telling the story in verse 29 where John the Baptist, John the Baptist is different than the Apostle John who wrote this book or the disciple John who wrote this book that we're reading. John the Baptist, similar name, was a man though who was sent on a mission to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. He had some disciples. Peter was not one of them, but Peter uh, was related to one of them as we'll discover in just a minute. He had some disciples. John the Baptist purpose was never to have his own disciples that follow him forever. His, he was going to transfer them to Jesus. And so we see that transfer begin to happen as suddenly one day, the first interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus, and it says in verse 29, the next day, or a day, just take it as that, we, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, this is John the Baptist saying this, behold men, behold followers, Look at this. Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those disciples with John the Baptist, they'd long been waiting for this moment when they would see the Messiah coming and he points them to him. He affirms that Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah. There's the man. There's who we've been waiting for. See him. It goes on and there was no other... uh, interaction with Jesus. They just saw him from a distance. They observed him. There he is. As we scoot down just a little bit, picking up in verse 35, you see the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Peter was not one of these men, but two of his unnamed disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. John hasn't yet told us who these two disciples are. But we hear the same thing again. It's the Lamb of God. He declares Jesus as the Messiah. Here he is, the saving one, the sacrificial Lamb of the world. And the disciples that are with him, they must have been like, whoa, there he is again. They would have recognized him from the day before. There he is again. Their hearts would have leapt because this is what they were living for. 
We see him. It's like as if you saw the second coming of Jesus. This is the first coming. They see him. They recognize him. They're excited in this moment. Look at verse 37. And the two disciples heard him say, uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Check this out. It's a little bit creepy. They noticed Jesus. And how do you feel if you're walking down the street and someone just starts following you? They just start following Jesus. I mean, they can do no else because they're excited. There he is. It's Jesus. And Jesus, knowing all things, he knows that they're right there with him. But it's a little bit odd that they just start following him. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? In other words, he says to them, what do you want? What are you following me for? What are you guys doing? And the disciples have this odd response again because they're doing something kind of weird. And so they, I imagine, were kind of stumbling over their words as this next uh, verse comes up here. And it says about them, uh, they said to him, Rabbi, which is they're showing respect to him. They want him to know we recognize you as at least teacher. They haven't said to him Messiah here, but they say Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying couldn't they have come up with something better? But they want to be with him. They want to be with him, and they want to follow him. They want to know. Uh, The Spirit was probably in that interaction. I mean, there's more going on here than we realize, just like always. But they want to be with him. And so it says, it keeps going, he said to them, and come and I'll, I'll show you, or we will see. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for uh, with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour or about four o'clock in the afternoon. So they spent the rest of the day. They journeyed home with him and they spent the rest of the day. They must have been convinced. Now we still don't know who these disciples were. It keeps going and the scene is about to change and another day is going to come. So they spend the, the late afternoon and evening with Jesus. They go home and then this next thing happens. The scene changes Remember, night has come, and when is the best fishing time? Nitty-gritty dirt band tells you. When is it? Fishing in the, in the dark at night. So some people have been out fishing. You need to know that because look at what happens. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So we know one of the John the Baptist's disciples was Andrew. We don't, get, we don't even find out who the other one was. I think it might have been John. John just doesn't want to write it. Like, I was, I was the other one. He's bragging. He's, he's being humble, I think. And so what goes on here is, is that Andrew, who's one of those disciples, is Simon Peter's brother. He first found his, own, his brother, Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. We found him. And he brought, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. And he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So they say, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Interestingly, they say that to Peter. Peter later becomes famous for affirming that very statement. Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus said, who do people say I am? And and what does Peter say? You are the Messiah. You are the Christ is what he's saying. You are the one who saves. He, Andrew doesn't try to convince his brother that 
what he said is true. Instead, what does he do? He drags his brother along. Come, you got to meet this guy. When you meet him, you'll know it's him. He's, he's here. We found him. And so it's, it's being with Jesus that convinced now Simon Peter that this is the Messiah. It's what had been done in Andrew's life. He had seen Jesus, and now it's what he knows to do with Peter. Isn't that good to know? You, know, you don't have to convince people. Get them towards Jesus. Help them, to, help them to know Jesus. Read the word. Experience Jesus. Interact with Jesus in, in a church setting, in, in the setting of explaining the word to them and showing them that. But you don't have to convince them that. The Spirit does the convincing. So here, in this moment, you have two worlds colliding. Peter and Jesus. These two guys would, the seashore setting where they were on the Sea of Galilee, this lake would become the setting where three years later they would part ways as they go different directions, the Sea of Galilee. But the Sea of Galilee is the center of Peter's world. It's where he lives. In fact, Mark 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, indicate that he had a large home on, in Capernaum along the shore where later, likely, Jesus lived at least for some of his ministry years. And it's in this place called Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is in Galilee, in this lush green part of Israel, on the northern side of Israel, quite a ways from Jerusalem where you would expect the epicenter would be. And he goes there and it's there that he finds this disciple in obscure Galilee that becomes uh, this, this disciple that becomes the rock, that becomes his friend, that becomes a strong leader in the church. And standing there, Peter experiences Jesus's intent gaze. Did you catch that in there? Jesus looked at him. He looked at him. When you look at people, we typically, we just see the outside. I see what somebody's wearing. I see the expression on their face. That might give me a little clue. I'm trying to read things about who a person is just by the outside because that's all I know. If I looked at Simon Peter, I would, I would see a simple man, a fisherman, so we know a few things about him. He probably was a man who was worn that would have been sun-soaked, a simple working guy. We know from Scripture in Acts 4.13, he was not formally educated, but he had been trained, like most Jewish boys, in the Scripture since the age of five. So his education was not necessarily high, but he was a wise man. He had the most common name of the day. Simon back then was like naming John or James, the two most popular names in America. It was that type of name. But Jesus was different. He could see right into Peter. You and I only see the outside. Jesus could see right into Peter. And just like he can see right into our hearts today, knowing what we think and what we feel knowing our motives, what's driving us. No matter how polished you might be on the outside, God knows the inner man. And that does two things in me. One is it terrifies me. You mean it's not hidden. Two, it gives me great joy that he knows me. There's these two things that seemingly opposing, but yet at the same time go hand in hand together in a beautiful way in the character of God. Jesus could see right into him And he knows us. He knows our insides. And you know what's a joyful thing? Yet he still loves us. Even though he knows what you don't want him to know. He knows that about Peter. He knows what a mess Peter's coming to him in. 
You see that word on the screen about he looked at him. It's the same Greek word used there for when Jesus had that piercing glance at Peter. When Peter was in the, in the priest's courtyard, when Peter denies Christ and Christ looks across and he looks at him, there's that piercing glance and Peter is just crushed at his actions. It's the same word. Jesus looked right into him. John 2.25 says, He, Jesus, did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person, and he still does today. And there's comfort in that. I can bring it out to him, and, and yet he'll still love me and accept me with his grace and bring me in as his child. Well, Peter would have been rough on the outside, the part that we all see, but there must have been something on the inside, right? He must have been because of all these years of fishing tough and strong and a good leader on the boat and so he knew what to do and he could command things and so Jesus must have looked at the inside and said, that's, gotta be, that's a guy I can build a church on. But Peter is a long ways from being the man that the keys of heaven could be handed to. There's so much yet to come in Peter's life. First things first, the dead has to come alive. God has to move Peter from death to life. He has to come to a place of belief in Christ. We like to think we're strong on the inside. But God sees what's on the inside and he knows the conversion that he has to do. Now with Peter, it's different. He doesn't yet know the cross and and the resurrection. Peter can't put his faith in the cross at this point, but he can understand the Messiah He can understand that this Messiah is the one to save. And Peter, in just a moment in his life, a belief occurs. And in just a moment, there's a new identity instilled in Peter. He's a new man, not remade man. He's a new man. He's defined as that. It's happened. Has that happened in your life? Have you seen God do that inside of you where where you move from that one place of death to life? And in just a moment, there's belief. In a moment, God declares a new identity over you. Jesus already knows Peter's name. I mean, that, that would be a little bit, how did you know that? And he says to Peter, he just says that you, you are Simon, the son of John. But that probably served as further proof to Peter that this really is the Messiah, that this is God. And he pronounces about him, you now shall be called Cephas. And the author, John, gives us an interpretation of that because we don't live in those times, which means Peter. Cephas, or Peter, come from the word rock in both Greek and Aramaic. In other words, what's going on here is he says to Peter, your name is now going to be called Rock. Okay? You think Peter has a clue what that means yet? That word becomes so important and significant in his life. What's in a name? At that time, no one was called Rock. Today, no one's called Rock. What should we name him? How about Rock? We don't do that. It was a strange name. But Jesus is declaring something. What's in a name? Names are key to identifying us. In the United States, names are mostly key to identifying our parents and their identity, right? There are hippie names. There are Western names, there are country names if you live in the country, there are city names, and then nowadays we just like whatever we can come up with, a jarble of letters, right? If it's creative, we go for it. But it says probably more about our parents than us. But in Jesus' day, a name was so valuable and important. 
Simon's name originally was very non-original, not all that different. In the Old Testament, Simon meant, in Hebrew, it meant he has heard or to listen, which was probably a good description of a guy who spent most of his time on the water with no one to talk to. He did a lot of listening. Later in Greek, after this, so maybe this guy had a little influence on that name, it later meant flat-nosed. I don't know if Peter had a flat nose or what, but later that's what came out of that. Don't read too much into that. The name Jesus, though, what does that mean? Jesus, as he recognized Jesus, it means Savior. In other words, to deliver or to rescue. To be given a new name for Peter, you don't understand the significance of this. It's huge. It's redefining. Your dad gave you the first name, and now Jesus has stepped in, and he's giving a new name. You know what? God gives new names to a lot of his special people. Abram became who? Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Uh, Jacob became Israel. Who said that first? Score. He got that. He became Israel. That's a little harder one, right? God has given new names, and here Simon becomes Peter. What's going on with this? Did he just get a nickname like, hey, Rock? There's a guy in in our culture called The Rock, right? But it's more than a nickname. This is far greater than that. He's getting a new identity. And it's packed with meaning and definition and substance that Peter can't even fathom on that sunny day along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus isn't looking at Peter and seeing who he is right then. Like, oh, this guy is tough. I could use him. He's looking at who he will become as the Christ life is formed and manifested in Peter. As the Spirit occupies him and changes him. That's what he's looking at when he sees Peter. And so he's given this new name, and by getting this new name, Peter, he can't even get it at this point. But he's given a new identity. You will be a rock. It's future tense. It's looking down the road. And in this moment, that's kind of like Peter's salvation moment. He believes and he finds this new life. He is alive at this point. Being renamed is a very prophetic thing of what's happening in this text, of who he's going to become. In fact, a little while later, like a couple years later, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I tell you that you, Peter, or Petros, on this rock, on Petra, I will build my church. If Jesus didn't do that because Peter was ready that day on the Sea of Galilee, he formed that. By the time Peter writes 1 Peter, he begins to see it. And there's a whole lot of rock talk in 1 and 2 Peter. Listen to this. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, Peter says, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And Jesus would be the cornerstone, right? He, he gets it finally. Later in his life, he's beginning to understand it. But how many of you on the day of your salvation had it all put together? No hands? We don't get it right away, do we? God has to form his life in us. He has to work that out. Peter has so much growth and development ahead of him. And it's declared of him, but Peter doesn't see it yet. This prophetic promise. 
Not yet the rock. But how could he even be? Because Jesus doesn't go, I give you the title rock because you're so immovable and strong. He's looking down the road. Not a nickname. It's a calling. Not by virtue of his character or accomplishments, but solely on the call of Jesus. Simon later is going to serve as a solid rock in the church. God is going to transform him and, and mold him into the character of Christ. And out of that, he can be called a rock. And really not even completely until Christ in him when he is with Jesus face to face in heaven. You know, there are a few books written about Peter. So it makes my study resources small. And someday I might write a book about Peter out of this series. I don't know. But it's, it's a neat series. And Michael Card, who's a, a, a music artist, Christian music artist, actually wrote one of the few books about Peter. And it's titled A Fragile Stone. And in that, he says this about Peter. God called an ordinary man to an extraordinary future by giving him a new title. He does that with you too. I said a minute ago that God has a reputation for changing the name of his people. Uh, and, and that's great for Peter, but we might wonder, well, does God have anything in this for me? What about what goes on for me? I'm just ordinary. Guys, I'm as ordinary as they come. Ordinary, normal people, where do we get our identity? It's natural for us. We're going to get our identity in what we do. We'll look to our accomplishments. We'll look to the stuff around us. You know, for Peter, I'm a fisherman. For us, we'll look to our accomplishments. One of the, what's one of the first things I would say if I meet somebody oftentimes? I try not to do this, but what will we do? What do you do? We want to know what a person does because it's partly defining. And if we're asked that question, we might say our occupation or some things we enjoy or things that we've accomplished. And we try to phrase those in a way that's not too bragging, but I want you to know about me. Right? Even to teenagers, we're going to say to sometimes to teenagers, well, you've got to find yourself as a teenager. Find out who you are. In other words, we're, we've got to be really careful with a phrase like that. Dig, look inside. See what you've got. You know, what we come up with when we look inside and find what we've got is we don't have much in there. We are in need. So to say that to a teenager is very, we, there's a lot of baloney in that. We need to say, who are you in Christ? Who has God formed you to be? And so teenagers, listen to that. You are not to go out and go, okay, what, who am I? I'm going to just experiment as much as I can. Yes, there's a little bit of discovery. You have to know your personality and some of those things. But how does that reflect in light of Christ? That's really the goal. That's what you, we need to be seeking. And so to find worth in what we've done, we're going to look in different places. We'll look at our victories, right? I want to find my victories. What, is, what do I have going on that, that's worth something? And so I'll tell about my victories or my trophies or my achievements or my wins. And I'll, I'll brag about those things instead of honoring God, acknowledging God as the source of all good things. And so in doing that, we're looking inside of ourselves and we're saying, look what I've got. We're taking the credit. Look what I've done. I want to be known as a, as a winner or, or as someone who's a leader or someone who's a man's man or if you're a woman, a beautiful woman or I'm somebody. And the pride of that is intoxicating, right? Oh, if I could be known as somebody by other people, that just, it fills me. It's intoxicating for a time. But on the other hand, we could also, instead of looking at our victories, we could begin to look at our failures too. And we could look around and our failures are also a reflection of what we do, right? 
in light of how we've blown it. I've blown it with my family. I've blown it with, with God. And so we might take on titles, labels, like, I'm just a loser. I just, I'm a failure. I'm just not enough. I can't do this. And those labels sometimes even get thrown onto us by other people, or we think that that's what they're thinking. But in doing that, that too is taking our identity, not from God, but in the things that we do, right? And it's super closely tied to pride, strangely enough, because it's still looking at me. I've got it. I know what I need. I know who I am and what I can give to the world. And that pride too is intoxicating, even though it's self-abasing. But the hangover from that is awful. We're humans and we have limitations, right? And we need to learn to rely on God. When we lose sight of our identity, we convince ourselves that we are amazing or a complete failure. And we miss the real amazing one in our lives, amazing thing that God who made the very universe calls you and I his child. So we will blow it off when we, when we try to find our worth in what we've done. We'll be knocked all around. We try to take the credit instead of the one, giving the credit to the one we actually belong to. Do you realize if you're a follower of Jesus, you may not be called Peter, but listen to what he does call you. This is one of many. Listen to this. John 3, 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we, the, the beloved, the, the ones who are uh, followers of Jesus, should be called, what does it say? Children of God. Who are you? I'm a child of God. It's not about what I've done, but who I belong to where I, I position myself in the belonging, not in what I accomplish. Do any of you feel like you've completely got that fleshed out in your life? That's like the journey of, of the disciple, learning what does it mean to have my identity in Jesus? What does it really mean to be a child of God, to be adopted by him? It goes on and says, and that's what we are. But dear friends, check this out. N- now we are children of God, And what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, we don't have it all together yet. I don't completely know what that means, but I know in part. I know in part. To be adopted, I mean, think about this. Uh, no, No parent, no father, no mother in the spiritual sense. On my own, independent, self driven. But then to be adopted and brought into the household of God. What does that mean? to come in under his shelter and his care, to be called his own, not like, well, he's not my biological. No, I am his own. I'm his as if I was his biological child. To be in that place where there's all of his resources at my fingertips, his power and his purpose for life given to me. Like what matters to him now matters to his children. I live for the sake of my father, not for my sake and what I can do. It's for his sake. To be in a spot where my relationship with him will not change no matter how bad I blow it. No matter what happens, can I damage the relationship or cause some distance for a time or run away from him? Yeah, but, but God's affection for me continues to be the same and I don't lose that status of child of God. And so I hold on and I seek him. I want to ask you a question. 
what's defining you today? Who are you? What defines you? Remember, we only get one life. We would need to ask ourselves, what name are we trying to make great? So to become a child of God, there's two things I want to give us as we finish up. How do I actually begin to step into that and see it in my life? Well, the first place to start is starting with understanding, acknowledging who we actually are. Admitting who we are. And we could add, if you're taking notes, dot, 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 needy. Who? You might go, well, I'm a man. I don't need anything. Yes, you do. I'm a woman. I, I've, I've taken care of myself for years. I don't need anything. Yes, you do. I'm 16. I've got my driver's license. I don't really need anything now. Yeah, you do. We in this room, all of us, need Jesus so desperately. We're sinners in need. And so there are really, truly about that need, two camps in that. Some of us in this room don't know Christ yet as Savior. And Scripture tells us about this need because of the starting point of sin. You are not yet a child of God because you still need your Savior. It hasn't been declared over you yet as a child. Scripture tells us in in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us sitting in this room, you can argue that all day long with me. That's what God said, not me. All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. But the gospel is so glorious because it takes us from that place of need and continues to hold us in a place of need, but that need of salvation is taken care of through Christ. You know what? You can go to church for years and years and not be saved. You can even serve in church and not be saved. You might even be able to preach in church and not be saved. Do you realize that John Wesley, uh, who became one very famous person in church history, he was a, a revivalist in England. Let me first tell you about his life. He had a terrible marriage. He had a really hard marriage. And he was married to a woman named Molly. Sorry, Molly, if you're in here. He probably shouldn't have married this gal. She gave him more problems than the problems in the world. We don't know quite why he married her. But when she died, he wasn't even at her funeral because he didn't know she had died because she was living somewhere else. They were apart from each other. It, It was a terrible, hard part of his life. But God knew John Wesley and was involved in all of these things. And you might know about him. He came to the U.S. and he preached to the Native Americans uh, very early in our history uh, in what is now Georgia. And so he came and he preached. and, And as he was preaching and sharing the gospel, he had all the facts and all the stuff right. He was probably a phenomenal apologist even. And yet he wasn't seeing results in his life. Even in his preaching, he wasn't seeing it, but in his own life. He was troubled by it. And on the way back to England after this uh, preaching tour, he was on his way back, and there were a bunch of Moravian believers on the boat, and they were singing songs in the middle of this terrible storm that came up on the ocean. Wesley was afraid and scared in this moment. And he asked them, well, why aren't you guys afraid to die? Or are you guys afraid to die is actually what he said. And they said, thank God the answer is no. We're fine with it. If we die, we die. We go meet, meet our Savior. 
And he realized in that moment that they had something that he didn't have. So it set him on a quest. He was, he was frustrated inside, disillusioned. He wanted peace. He wanted transformation, but he just didn't have it. And he walked into a church that was reading the preface to, to Luther's uh, book on Romans. And, and as he was sitting there listening to that, as it was being read, God started to do something in him. And Wesley, the man who was preaching to people that they ought to be converted, was finally converted himself in that moment. You might be in church a long time. You might even serve in church. But has God gotten a hold of you? Have you surrendered yourself fully to him? Have you trusted him through the cross and made that exchange so you can be declared a child of God? And once you do, the need doesn't go away. The need still stays there. Even after all these years of walking with Jesus, I realize I still have the need. I'm desperately in need of him. No longer for first-time salvation, but in the process of God continuing to work his life out in me. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 3 said, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. See yourself accurately. I'm not something You're not something in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. What I am is a sinner saved by grace. That's all. I'm still a sinner in need of God's grace every day in my life. And so we need to admit, but that moves to a second place of surrender. Surrendering to, get to what God wants to do in you. And what he wants to do in you is for your good. And some of you are fighting him so badly, it's just tearing you apart and you, it's just destroying you. Even apart from anything spiritual, you see how it's just destroying you and his glory. As you surrender to him, he receives the glory. God wants to do and form his life in you. He wants to make you. And our choice is faith or flesh. Like clay, he molds us and he shapes us and sometimes that's painful and hard and he's pressing on areas. But Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But listen to me. Some of you in this room are more pliable than others. And some of you are bucking and fighting against God so hard and you just don't want to let him. And you'll say things like, well, you know what? I can't. Well, it's not a big deal. I mean, I just get, I'll get through. I prayed a prayer at one point. I'm fine. Or I was just born stubborn. Or I don't want that. I want his salvation, but I don't want his life in me. I'm good. I'm fine. You're missing out. You're missing out if you're fighting and bucking against God. He wants to do so much in you, and it's so good. And may it be it's hard, like Peter. I mean, Peter, he got, talk about a guy, I think that piece of clay just got smooshed over and over and restarted. And God might do that in you, and it might hurt, but it's so much better than fighting him. So the question is, would you surrender yourself to him? See, God loves you way too much to leave you alone. If he left you alone, it means he doesn't love us. But he continues to love us by continuing to shape and form in in us what he wants to do. His grace covering our failure. 
but he's kind enough to keep messing with you. It's out of kindness. It's out of love. So will you let him? Surrender the white flag at this table today. If you've never trusted Jesus, going back to this as Savior for the first time, before you come to this table, would you settle that? This table is for believers. Would you say, Jesus, I want you to save me. What you did on the cross, paying the penalty that I deserve because I've sinned, but you're greater and your grace can cover me. So as you come to the table, maybe before you walk up here, the step you need to take is doing that. It's trusting him in your heart, praying that. And if you do, come tell me today because I want to encourage you and I want to help you in that journey with God. But for many of us, as we take the bread, it's going to be saying this bread, it's like the need I have. I need the bread of life. I need Jesus. As we take the cup, it's going to be the step of, I'm surrendered to you, Jesus. I want you to live your life in and through me, shape me, mold me as this liquid is molded and it moves. Do the same in me. You died for me. You died that I would, you just keep doing that work in me. And I'm gonna let you do it and have your way. So spend some time with the Lord this morning. Peter was one of the disciples that was in the upper room. And as they were together, this is shortly before Jesus died. He brings them together. We know the washing of feet. And he leads them in what is like the first communion. And he's trying to help them see that this death that he's about to die is far more significant than they think it is as they're looking at it just through the physical eyes and not yet all the revelation of the Spirit in the Word that we have. And he draws their attention to the two elements and he says, it says that he gave thanks. So thanks should be an active part of our coming to the table. And he broke the bread And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread is saying, I need Jesus. I need him. He's the bread of life. He fills me. He sustains me. I need him. It's his body that was broken for me so that I could have him. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant of grace. Surrender to grace. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what I think one of the most powerful things we can do at the communion table is? Not to just regulate it to cognitive remembrance, but to actively remember in the symbolic way of I'm coming to you and in this interchange, I'm saying, God, I desperately need you. These are just symbols, but I desperately need you and I'm surrendered to you. What a beautiful act of worship that would be today as you come to the table. Remembering it's only through the cross. It's only through the grace of the cross. Could you do that today? When you are ready, you can come forward. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you. There's a gluten-free at this table and the back table. Matt and the worship team are just going to play for a couple of minutes in the background, and then they're going to lead us in a final closing worship song. When we sing that, let's sing it with all we've got after we've been with Jesus and interacted with him.